We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What's a Flying up one wing, Hector Bellerin flying up the other, and goals flying in for the Arsenal. That's Europa League football. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Alex Smith. You can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. That's right. It's Europa League football that we love because Kieran Tierney doesn't play in the Premier League. Hector Bellerin doesn't play in the Premier League. But the same old crap does, and that is what we were served on Monday night. We waited over two weeks for the Arsenal to come back, and now most of us are thinking, when is the next international break? Um... We got a lot to break down, so Clyde and Paul are here. going to introduce them momentarily. Tim will be along down the line. <clears throat> so we couldn't get him scheduled at the same time, but uh, I know he wanted to come on and throw his weight behind the manager forcefully. So we'll, we'll definitely let him do that. Um, real quick, want to thank everybody uh, on Patreon who joined for the live commentary. Seems like the technology worked pretty well for some people, not perfectly for others, uh, but it'll be rolling out to Android as well soon. So we'll do a few more of those for patrons and then eventually open that up to everybody. Big, exciting news. Oscar Wood, when he writes something, you want to read it. He is a brilliant football writer. Um, you can find him on Twitter at Rihanna Wall. He is writing a major Emory piece that we are going to have the privilege of publishing on our site for everybody, free and available, uh, probably on Wednesday. And then we'll do a Patreon pod with him to talk about his article and uh, some of the data therein and some of the conclusions he draws. So I'm really excited about that. A lot of good stuff going on. And of course, as always, um, you can sign up for our athletic promotion. I did get some feedback that apparently if you try to do it through our link, it defaults to U.S. dollars. If you don't want it to default to U.S. dollars, you can do the .co.uk. So you can do the athletic.co.uk forward slash Arsenal Vision and get half off and a month free. Or you can do the athletic.com forward slash Arsenal Vision, get the same thing. 
really just depends what kind of currency you prefer. Um, uh, having no currency is the easiest thing, and that's that's the direction I prefer to go. Tim will be here, as I mentioned. Paul's on Twitter. Pause in my pants. Hello, pause. Woohoo! Clive's on Twitter. Clive PAFC. Hello, Clive. <clears throat> hello, hello. All right, Clive. I want to start with you. I <laughs> think there's. I want to do this really, really quickly. Okay. Just with respect to the lineup, there are a couple of head-scratching things for me. I felt that Hector Bellerin could start. And my defense of that is he played 90 minutes over three weeks ago, or roughly three weeks ago. So if you can play 90 minutes and you've had three additional weeks of training, you can play again. Hector Bellerin aside, we know that Tierney is available. According to James Benj on Twitter, Emery said Cola was picked because he didn't do anything to deserve being dropped. If there is one decision around which this whole conversation pivots for me, that is certainly a big one. So how do you feel specifically about that decision and how it reflects on Emery's judgment? I didn't agree with that decision. And my feeling is, I, I agreed with dyslexics up until now, you know, regarding how bringing back Tierney and Bellerin, but there needs to be a handover at some point. We paid 25 million English pounds up front, lump sum, for a player, and we need to play him when he's ready to play. For me, that first Premiership game was Sheffield United away. And we've now delayed that opportunity, and given the fact we're playing midweekers, and we got Thursday, we got Liverpool next week, mm-hmm. and we've got a Sunday game... Now we're gonna, you know, wonder what 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 his pathway is going to be, and I'm not saying that you know, we're talking about Messi here, but I'm talking about somebody that we're all keen to see. The club have invested money in, and we haven't seen him in a real big game. And I think what we have seen of him, he looks like somebody that has the the cojones to play for Arsenal and actually bring something with him. You know, so um, so yeah, part of that fan excitement, part of that's so, come on, we understand the schedule. This is the moment. I think the manager's probably right that um, Carlo hasn't done anything wrong. But we can, I feel he can do a lot more right when he plays football and we need to progress. And that's what we decided to do with the investment in Tierney. So we need to see him and get his chance to play. And if he doesn't do as well as what Carlo has done, then he has to sit down. But my suspicion is he will do a lot better. And we all want mm. to see that. So I... I did understand that one. On Bellerin, I didn't think he would play. I think he'd had a, he's been out for much longer, had a much more severe injury. And I think he has some work to do to get back to full power. He could obviously play. If we lost all our right backs, he would play. But I think we need to know, we need to be careful with him. I've always felt we overplayed him in recent years. We need to protect his career. He's a massive investment for the club. Will be the future club captain when the other one go, goes away. And I think... It's somebody we need to make sure we don't rush and, and blow it. You often find when someone does a cruise ship, they're very susceptible to doing another one on the other leg. So we need to be really, really careful. I'm prepared to trust the club on that one, given the fact that we have got other right-back options. So, Tini, I don't understand. But as you well know, I'm sure we'll get to it in this podcast. Just one selection is not what we're really going to talk about. No, we're <laughs> going to talk just... about a lot of things. But I, I do think that there are elements of my my frustration with Emery in in total built into the decision about Tierney. The desire to stick with Kolasinach for reasons that don't really align with footballing quality and the performances on the pitch. The 
conservative nature of, of the way he makes his selections in terms of, you know, for a guy who really seems to value work ethic and training and I pick the team based on who trains well, he certainly doesn't seem to have as much consideration for who plays well because he doesn't reward the players that play well as much as he seems to reward the players who train well. Um, I also worry that the decision to keep Tierney out might be linked to the fact that he figures, I want Tierney to play Thursday because then I can use him against Liverpool, and I really want to beat Liverpool in the League Cup. So Tierney's yep. going to play Thursday, Wednesday. And to me, that is a misunderstanding of the priorities at a big club. Beating Liverpool in the League Cup literally doesn't matter. Nobody cares. It doesn't matter. What matters is getting top four and getting back into the Champions League and moving the club forward. And Paul, I do wonder if we're starting to see the club at loggerheads with its own manager to some extent because the club gave Mesut Ozil 350000 a week. The club spent millions of pounds bringing Tierney in with, with a protracted negotiation that resulted in them prying away this prize possession from Celtic. The club went out and spent a lot on a 20-something defensive midfielder from Syria, a Uruguayan who they believed solved a, a serious problem and need that this squad had. The club went out and did all of these things and the manager is not really taking those things into consideration. Now, I'm not saying the coach has to pick the team based on who the club gives him, but do you think that this will ramp up the tension between Edu and Raul and Vinay with Emery, the fact that Torreira just apparently is not in his plans, that Mesut Ozil is not in his plans, and again, we've done the Ozil debate, but I'm just putting it into this category, that he's been that he was reluctant to play tyranny in this case because, you know, ultimately... These are resources that the club has committed to trying to make the team better, and the, the coach is not using them to their best ability, or in some cases at all. So I was pretty much with you uh, in your your spiel on not selecting Tierney uh, to this point, but uh, I don't see the bigger, broader um, shadows you're, you're talking about. I don't actually see much gap between Emery and Ra Raul and Edu in terms of an active tension between... They may have their concerns about him. Uh, if they've got eyes, they should have concerns. We all do have concerns about where things are going in our trajectory, but I don't think it's... There's some kind of tug of war going on here in terms of them having provided him resources and him not using them. Um, and I, I do think... On, think the unfortunate thing with us as supporters is we can get a, a amazingly bent out of shape when a player new to the side or coming back isn't used in the game we think he should be used for for the first time. I mean, in the broader scheme of th things, whether Tierney starts his first game for the club in the Premier League against Sheffield United or the next week um, doesn't determine shouldn't determine uh, whether a manager is at war with the fans or with with the management. Do I think Tierney should have started in, in this game? Um, I think he could have made a big difference to how we play, and he certainly looks like a missing piece for how Emery wants to play. If we assume uh, he's, he's fit enough for the Premier League for 90 minutes, he should... He certainly should have been fit enough for a good 30, 35 minutes in the second half. I think Emery should have used him if he didn't want to start him straight for the 90 or out of respect for Cola's contribution or whatever. But if he's trying to work out what the missing piece is, this seemed like a game 
a game he'd want to get Tierney in there if he could. If he's being overly conservative and caring of Cola's feelings, um, he might rue that to some degree. But I don't see a bigger, uh, this being a piece in a bigger narrative that Emery and Raul Edu are heading in different directions at this point. I don't see any active tension, any active uh, tug of war going on there, even if they may well have their concerns in the background. I guess... To be fair, I mean, Edu didn't bring in Torreira. Edu didn't give the contract, and Raul didn't give the contract to Ozil, presumably. Um, you know, they they were actively involved in the Tierney acquisition. But I do think that if you are the sort of behind-the-scenes group, if you're the director of football consortium, for lack of a better way to put it, um, at a club, and you have a coach who doesn't seem to want to use the resources in the way you envision them being used. And again, I, I refer back to the point that that not all of these were Edu and Raul players. Um, I, I do think that can cause tension. I, I would wonder, I would love to sort of pick Raul and, and Edu's brain on what's going on with Torreira and how he's being used. Um, because I think that is an interesting one. And, you know, again, I, I think that the Ganduzi shaka double pivot against a team like Sheffield was redundant. I don't think it was necessary. I think you can deploy, you, you can uh, invert the pyramid, so to speak, and go with one, uh, you know, uh, one holder and two more advanced midfielders. And Clive, that, that leads me to, to sort of the ball progression issue. And I, I thought we really, really struggled in the first half to progress the ball. We we went back to playing out from the back. It wasn't working. Anytime the ball went to Kolasinac, that was the that was a turnover. That was the end of the play. It seemed like our only out ball was get it wide and kick it long. And we couldn't play out through the middle. And I think a big part of that was related to Willick as well. I, I love Joe Willick. I don't think the role he's been given in the Premier League, has always suited him. It reminded me a little of the Newcastle game. If you remember the Newcastle game, we struggled with ball progression. Willock was played at 10. He couldn't really get in the game. He didn't really understand how to drop back and connect to the midfield. In this game, he had nine passes. We had 260 passes in the first half, a game that we had 68% possession. Our number 10, our connector, the guy between the lines, he had nine passes, none to Aubameyang. So, you know, that sort of tells you, I and think, what was happening. the Newcastle game was also, th- they had three at the back and crowded, crowded midfield, midfield with yep. five players. So there yeah. were a lot of similarities. Though there did seem to be a bit more space before they scored for Willock in, in the midfield. I agree. And sadly, before they scored, we had uh, one shot. It was the Pepe shot. We had nine shots in this game. We produced about 0.8 to 0.9 XG, depending on who you look at. But trailing for an hour we produced about 0.4 XG and eight shots. So we didn't exactly see, you know, the lay siege to their goal while trailing. Clive, I, I want to get your thoughts on that ball progression issue and, and maybe, you know, the way that midfield just does not seem to be able to progress anything through central spaces. Yeah, I think, um, I, I think Will had struggled a little bit, um, which is obvious. He also struggled for England under-21s last week, which was you know, a little byline that if you were watching, you would have noted. And so I did not expect him to start. I thought Torreira may have started, or I thought Sabayas may have started, but I didn't think that it would start. I did want to criticise the fact that the coach is picking academy kids, so I just let it go pre-game. But during the game, it was obvious he was just sent out there to run about. Just run about, and if we can help on the transition, we can you know, put some work rate in, put some legs in, run about, and try and see if we can, you can run up the pitch with the ball as we break, and just try and get a, a counter-attack goal. That, to me, is not a good enough reason to pick him. And I think, I, I hope we're not seeing another in-betweener. We've got a few of these in-betweeners that are also players that are not quite the player we want, but they fall between positions. 
Maitland-Niles being one, Iwobi was one before he left, Oxley Chandler was one before he left. Willock is another one just developing into that. And, you know, we've got a situation with Callum Chambers in particular. You know, what is he a, you know, is he a right back, is he a hold midfielder, is he a centre half, or is he none of the above? I do think it's very important that we fix that boy's position. If he's going to be part of a double pivot, then let's educate him that way. If he's going to be in our round, let's educate him that way in the two. You know, and let's not try to make him a, a number 10. He could be a Ramsey 10, but I'm not sure yet. And it's difficult for him to go away from home to develop that. If you're going to develop him in those sort of what I call high responsibility roles, let's do that at home. Let's do that in the right environment. Let's do that in, in the Europa League. Let's do that in situations where he can do that without the pressure of carrying the football club when Mesut Ozil sit at home and he's setting on 350 a week. That's too much and unfair for him to do, based on particularly his recent form, which hasn't been great. So, Eddie, I know, you, I know you're focusing on individuals in your question, and I totally get that. But let me, let me tell you what, what was wrong with this game. When you watch the first five to ten minutes of a game of football, you normally can tell what the coach has said to the players in the dressing room. I'd be honest with you, as you well know me, I always try to look at it from a coach's perspective and I have issues around the coach's motivation and his knowledge of his own players. I, I don't think he understands their primary roles and their primary psychology well enough to apply them into any system onto the pitch. That's my chief issue with him. When you go to Sheffield United, you're going up north, you're going that into a cold environment on a Monday night. This is not Arsenal time. This is not what we're good at. And so it's very important how you start the game. It's very important you start with confidence, with aggression, with intensity, on the ball and off the ball, and you make sure you play in the right areas. We did none of the above. We played completely close to our goal. We encouraged the team onto us that were looking for a foothold and looking for set pieces. We didn't clear, we didn't exit very well because we haven't got the square block we did have at the start of the season when I got excited. So we got no exit strategy. We've got no ability to go to go into long because our wingers are not really players that can post up, and our centre forward is not a post up player neither. So we really struggle with progression. So we hope to progress from the back, but I just feel we have to be play a slightly longer game to start and put them under pressure and make sure we press them back and we impose our game on them. And so what I felt, we just went out there sloppily, lazily, and just played about. And I think it took until around 3 minutes, 24 seconds, until we cleared our lines eventually from the first phase of Sheffield United getting into our area. We couldn't get out. We got corner, corner, corner. My son put a bet on, make sure there'd be no more than 12 corners in a game. After about 20 minutes, I think there's nine corners. It's just ridiculous, <laughs> right? So he's just throwing his money away, right? So there is no, there's no assessment or game strategy when we go away from home to say how are we going to play, what we're going to do to your position. What I feel we do is we just go and play and we see what happens. We try to get the first gun on the break and then we play from there. I just feel we're not imposing ourselves. And the biggest issue for me is that we're approaching this game with a small club mentality and mm -hmm. there is no need to do it. I said on Twitter that Sheffield United are rubbish. I, I didn't mean that disrespectfully because obviously defensively, if they score, they can defend their, defend their goal. They've only conceded seven goals this year. 
They've got the best defensive record in the Premier League. So they know how to defend. They do They do defend with nine players and they play for set pieces. That's what they do. Right? So, so we needed to impose ourselves on them and make sure we played in areas away from our goal. That doesn't need super analytics. It doesn't need super databases. It just needs you to see them play against Liverpool recently and see what they did and say, okay, this is the type of game we're going to play. Let's make sure maybe we do play Sobias deep in the midfield so we can progress the ball. Let's make sure we really impose our best players on them in their half and take away the encouragement they can even get anything from us. And from there, hopefully our talent will show and hopefully, like Liverpool, the goalkeeper will throw one in. That didn't happen. We missed the first big chance. They score their first big chance. And now we are we are then left with the classic Jose Mourinho into Milan, deep block versus Barcelona in the Champions League semi-final. And we all know what happened that day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, look, if you want to do something fun, if you have access to the Stat Zone app, I say fun. Fun is not really what we're going to associate with Arsenal at the moment. But um, you can bring up pass maps and you can look at them by period. So if you just look at the first half, we played... 226 successful passes out of 271 attempted. Joe Willock had nine of those again. Uh, but the, the thing that I think is interesting, you could draw a rectangle, all right, from the, the midfield stripe to their goal that is a rectangle of the central space, right? So not the half space or the wing, just the center of the, the pitch from midfield to their goal. And there's two passes in that rectangle. We did nothing in the center of the pitch. No connectivity, do you, do you, do you, no why progression. Why do you think that is? Why well, do you think that is? I mean, I think it's a few things. I think, first of all, that that Joe Willick wasn't able to drop in and find the space. I mean, I don't think he was even told to necessarily. I want to be clear. Think, I'm not picking on Joe Willick. Do you think Do you No, think he's, he's not a skill? connecting player. He's not a fine he's a trans, space. He's a transition, he's a transition player. Field, he's a runner. He likes to carry the ball at his feet. I think he's a support striker. I think he's more Aaron Ramsey than he is Mesut Ozil. And I am not picking on Joe Willock, but I am saying with two redundant pit with that redundant double pivot of Ganduzi and Shaka dropping deep and looking up and you look at the pass map and there's just an avalanche of long passes into the into the fullbacks and that was our escape route. Now Paul, one player that I want to focus on for a second because I think he deserves a lot of credit and I feel for him is Nicola Pepe. So, I thought Pepe was our best player in the game. It sucks that he had the big miss, that he had the one moment. And the irony is I thought Kolasinac was dreadful and had the key pass that could have given us the lead. And Pepe was brilliant and had the key miss that may have cost us the game. And football sort of unfortunate like that because it, it turns on big moments. But what Pepe started to do when our ball progression was clearly not working is drop deeper and deeper and deeper and collect. And he was getting us out of a lot of bad spaces. And interestingly, for the tap-in that he misses... He's run the length of the pitch after dribbling his way out of a maze of Sheffield United players to start that counterattack. So I'm curious to get your take on, you know, Pepe's ability to drop deep, collect the ball, and get us moving forward, but also the fact that that means he's he's not starting the play. He's not getting the ball in more dangerous areas. He's having to come all the way back to, to start us moving up the pitch. Look, uh, I'm actually okay with Pepe dropping deep. That's what he used to do at, uh, at Lille. Yeah, that's fair. Mm-hmm. Um, and we saw what it did in this game. I mean, it might sound like I'm about to defend our our way of approaching this game, but I'm more saying this was interesting. Um, like, if you're going to have misery, let's have different kinds of misery. This was a different approach. This was back to 
uh, Anfield-type suicidal playing out from the back. And it was kind of, I have to say, I found it interesting and exhilarating at times. Unfortunately, we're not very good at it. But a couple of times we pulled it off, and that Pepe move was one of them. Um, he had a couple of moves like that where he sort of yeah. one-twoed it to himself, you know, around around defenders and then pushed the ball ahead and, and started us transitioning. Yeah, I think that's right. And if you look at who were the assisters in this game, in the first half, it was supposed to be Pepe and uh, Saka. And across the game, I think both of them were mostly uh, quite dangerous and quite effective. And yet, we, you know, Saka produced a couple of moments and, and Pepe less so in terms of assists for other players. Um, nobody got Aubameyang on the goals uh, on the ball, so it was kind of weird that our assisters kind of had good games, Saka and uh, Pepe, and yet still in the final third. And then you throw in Sabalas in the second half, and uh, and still Sabalas to me is more a pre-assister than a sister. Based he was on, dreadful. He's not a number ten. He just isn't. <laughs> he's not. No. Um, I mean, he 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 worked manfully. But uh, I think the problem is we expect him to assist, and I've never seen, you know, he had just a couple of goals and a couple of assists in his uh, previous incarnations at Betis and Real Madrid. I mean, you can just a handful across his whole career. He's a pre-assist guy or a pre-pre-assist guy. He'll, he'll help you be, build and accelerate play, but you're going to need a uh, a number 10 in front of him or however you're getting that done in this case it was Saka and Pepe and and weirdly I thought they were both like you say uh our best or or a couple of our best players and yet we assisted very 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 little I think the other interesting thing apart from playing out from the back um th- th- this to me felt like it should have been a game that went better for us um because we did a couple of interesting things we tried to play out from the back and that uh, clive talked about the issues with that but there were, yeah, times right. there were no when, exits that's the problem we tried to play out yeah. from the back but the exit wound up being a long yeah. ball up the wing to nobody yeah but <laughs> what it did do was it yeah it did stretch the pitch uh one way or another and the other thing we did that we haven't done away from home was we definitely pressed especially in the first half the second half that's kind of a moot point because they were that's where they were back in their final third um but uh, we definitely pushed and were aggressive and were protagonists in the first half. We just weren't very good. Um, so it kind of had a couple of interesting uh, features to it as an away game that we haven't seen in other away games. Um, it just didn't, you know, nothing really worked. The Willock thing was mm. weird because that's a wasted player, right? I would have expected, if you described how we were going to play, I would have expected that Willock could have had a decent game for his helpness kind of play out from the back, like uh, kind of stripes up the pitch, him and Pepe and Aubameyang charging forward with the ball. But that's not, we didn't play it well. We couldn't play out. We couldn't find players out of there. So I kind of get the logic of it, but we didn't execute. Um, we weren't able to progress it up the pitch. I mean, we should have been mm. quite exciting pulling the ball out from deep, 
str- uh, charging up the pitch and then pressing them when they had the ball in the first half. But that's not how we didn't execute, and that's not how it played out. Yeah, and I, I don't think that you can just avoid the center of the pitch altogether and think that you're going to really do anything with ball progression because it's too easy for teams to to block off that route to goal. And you can say, oh well, Liverpool used fullbacks. They used fullbacks overlapping and getting into space with big switches and things like that, or in transition. But they still progressed the ball through the middle of the pitch. I mean, Gini Wijnaldum had had a, a good game, I thought, against United in, in what was pretty dreadful game overall. But, you know, for me, the other thing I, I would just say about pressing, here's the problem with saying we pressed. Like, one individual player running at one individual player with the ball isn't... I mean, it's pressing, but it's not good. I still think that our press looks too ball-oriented, individual-oriented. A guy chasing after another guy with the ball. It's not about shutting down passing lanes. It's not about closing down angles. It's not about using the the boundary as an extra defender. It is just about chasing after the guy with the ball. And that that's easy to play around, and that actually leaves you more exposed. Clive, you, you want to come back on this point, though? Because I think this whole pattern of play issue is something that is, I mean, is a persistent issue for us. I don't think this game was about us pressing. I think it was about us being pressed. And I had a quick look today. Um, I looked at the game at Old Trafford and I looked at this game. In the Old Trafford game, Callum Chambers had uh, 34-odd passes, right? I think he was in the 70s for this game. If Callum Chambers is in your top three passing combinations and he's one of your top three passes, that's over 70 passes, which I think he had completed 59 which half of them were backwards, um, or to uh, Gwenduzi, you've got a problem when your £70 million superstar is just ahead of him. We're asking Callum Chambers to connect our team. What Sheffield United really carefully was they let him have it, and then they pressed that side and gave him an, no exit down that side. So they smashed through Pepe, and they said, right, you can have it up to here, then when you try to exit, we're not letting you come across the pitch and switch. So you have to exit down the same side. And we're going to overload and, and smash you down that side. Puts a lot of pressure on Pepe. This is why I do think it was his best game. Because he, he got the ball back to goal, two, three men, and got out of that situation a lot. And helped us get out of the pitch. So for me, he was by far our best player. Given the fact that they were really trying to press his side in particular. Mm. If you look at Colosinic's numbers... He had a high pass percentage again. So they let players that we don't really want having the ball have the ball. And they're not good at progressing. They're not accurate. They're not agile enough. They haven't got the pass appreciation. They haven't got the body shape in all good situations. And when you talk about our other two fullbacks, and I and Maitland Niles would be much better in this situation, but I say that yeah. the early Maitland Niles would be much better. The one that was shot tired mentally maybe wouldn't have been but he would have been better than Callum Chambers with 70 odd passes that's for sure because he's a midfielder stroke winger and so he should be Callum Chambers is a fullback stroke set and a half right so and so when we talk about the fullbacks coming in and I'm not saying the fullbacks are going to come along with um, gold and, and fishes and bread what I'm saying to you is they are press resistant they are used to receiving the ball people running at them they shake bake drive inside pop it and go Right, and we've seen that with Tierney, we've seen it with Bellerin over many, many years. And what teams will then do is they won't press them. They'll press somebody else. The next weakest link, they'll go and press Shaka. You see what I mean? So you're, the opposition, I oh, heard me say this so many times, the opposition tells you who you are. Our fullbacks are lumpy. One's a wing back and one's a centre back. Oh, yeah, you can have it. 
We're not letting Davi, uh, David Louise is going to pass it to him. As soon as he goes out that way, we're going to put him under pressure because they're the weaklings. We don't want them progressing into our half. We can keep in their half. Then we can get throw-ins and corners and we can smash shots from across, across their box and make them defend. And that's what he did until we messed up. You see what I mean? And so we are nowhere near in shape to progress the ball like we should do. I don't think the manager is thinking about it in the same way. I think he's trapped in certain selections and he's not realising how that's hurting the team. There are things that players are doing which I feel are a byproduct of not of what they are seeing. Pepe, for one, coming too deep on occasion, although I do like his free spirit. Gwendouzi and Sabayas, I don't like how they just go. They like to receive the ball. And so we've got a situation where we have this structuralist team that we can quite rightly criticise, you know, based on the fact that we can't see something that we can recognise on a week-to-week basis. And so we have some simple decisions to make, and these decisions I thought would happen towards the end of the season. Gwendouzi and Shaka have got the same personality. Choose one. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Just choose one. Mm -hmm. Just choose one. We can all see it. Just choose one. They're the same alphas, right? They want to get the ball. We can't have two of them doing it. Because what happens is, they try to separate. When they separate, we're not in a position to have any structure in our midfield. Right? So just choose one. Torreira is a, is a far more different character and he will fit with either one of them. Play him. Just play him. It's just obvious. He has to play. And Sabayas, although I think he's bright and I think he's quite useful in certain scenarios, I don't think he fixes Arsenal's problems that have been there for many, many years. So for me, he's not a purchase for next year. Joe Willock could be a useful player in our squad. That third player... He's not there. Hence, we are yearning for the player that used to be perfect in that role. And he's not really shown us anything or not been allowed to. Let's not go there again. But I can understand why people are pining for him when we watched that last night. Yeah. And so, and so yeah, this is what's happening earlier. And I think we have some decisions to make. I'm a big fan of rugby, right? Rugby World Cup is on. I watch England. Eddie Jones, he's my favourite coach of all time in any single sport. He rotates, he moves things around, he picks players, he develops players. Come the World Cup quarterfinal last weekend, he picked his best team. He knew his career was on the line and he picked it. They went out there and they smashed Australia. I'm telling you now, Unai Emery needs to pick that best team and he needs to not worry about upsetting certain people. He needs to pick it because there are people on the picket line waiting to get him. Do you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and, and the pitchforks are coming out and there comes a moment where you need to stop thinking and start playing the people that are going to save your job, move this club forward. You're overthinking it, mate. You're overthinking it. Let's see what the best team has. If they don't perform, then give someone else a chance. But let's get to that best team because we're all waiting for it. And therein, when he will be judged on that best team, which he and the club have been involved in purchasing. But let's see it. Let's see where we are. Right now, the frustration is we don't know what we are. We don't know where we are. We don't know how good we are because we haven't really seen that full team, that first 11, 12, 13. It's not far away. We can all name it. Let's see it. And then when we see that, then we can judge exactly where we are as a club. And I, I think, look, at some point, you know, I've said it on another podcast, when someone shows you who they are, believe them. Like, we know what Emery's football is now. I, 
I just think that the excuse making and the pointing down the road and the when the fullbacks get fit and when Locke is at his back and there's always an excuse, but whatever players are on the pitch, we know the kind of football he wants to play. And to me, the question becomes, is there any lineup where that football is going to be consistently three-point football for a big club, especially in away games, playing it wide, trying to kick long to fullbacks, getting into spaces to overlap and trying to cut back into the box. You can do some of that. Liverpool certainly do. Manchester City certainly do. But you've got to be able to play the ball through the middle of the pitch. You have to be able to connect passes in midfield. I think we've seen persistent problems with Emery not knowing what to do with a midfield three. I think he tried Ramsey at a 10 at the beginning of the last season. It didn't work. He's never liked Mesodozo there because he wants that number 10 to be a pressing agent, an active off-the-ball defender, a carrier. He doesn't like that pop into space, get it and give it kind of player. Hey, on, he doesn't on, want the just, 10 to be the final ball guy, Clive. He does not want that player playing the final ball. I, I, he, he wants I, I him spraying it out to the can, wings. I don't think you can say that. I just, I don't think he's never solved that problem. He has never he's solved never that sol- problem. He's never solved that problem. But I don't think you can sit there and say what he likes and doesn't like because he hasn't done anything over a consistent period. No, but, but there are, certain, like, there are like, certain things we can see, right? Like, like you can't prove a negative, but I think the absence of something is evidence of something. So, for example, the absence of a consistently influential number 10 in Emory's system, the absence of any central creativity and creation, the absence of prolonged central midfield passing sequences, that tells me what Emery is instructing the players to do in building the play and creating chances. I, I mean, it's not an accident that that those absences have existed his entire time at the club. And you're right, he hasn't consistently stuck with anything, but whatever he's I'm tried, saying. those patterns have existed. Well, let me just, real quick, because there were some incidents in the game, and I, I do want to keep this game specific to the extent that we're able, and, and Paul, just a couple quick incidents. I was doing live commentary, obviously, um, for this game, which was terrible. Uh, Saka, for me, anticipated contact and kind of dragged the leg and wanted to go down. There was contact. So I'm okay with it not being a pen, but for me, it is certainly not a dive. Do you have a different perspective on that? Um, Certainly not a dive. I think it was a reasonable shout at a penalty. As long as refs are consistent, I guess I'm okay with us not getting it. Um, it doesn't have to be a pen, right? Like it's that's one it of does, those is contact always a foul kind of things. Yeah, I bet if that was in midfield, it's a foul though. Yeah, I mean he definitely kicks his foot, and uh, Saka may not in midfield. He might have been more determined to stay up, but. That could go either way, I would say. It's the weird but, way he the trailing leg. What Saka does with it, it's that Rooney thing, right? Where he's yeah, yeah, he's yeah. kind of expecting to get kicked on it so that he can go down. If you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, and I think it, it's probably a little bit of theatrical that gets him the card. Um, on the other hand, does that mean it's not a it was that there wasn't a kick on the foot on the no, ankle? No, on I the mean foot? there was. Yeah. Does it mean it's not a foul? You know. Uh, like I say, if they're going to adjudicate them the same way every time, that's okay. It's marginal. Uh, certainly could have been a, a penalty, but uh, I wouldn't cry if they're consistent. The problem is they're never mm. consistent. What about the one that Emery picked out? The one that so Emery didn't seem too exercised about that, but he was very exercised about Socrates not getting the penalty on the corner kick where his shirt was pulled. The pull on the shirt. I mean, yeah. I, my take on this is. He's not getting to that ball, and we're not scoring a goal from it. But that's not the penalty rule. And I guess what I would say is, 
this is the kind of thing that we're supposed to be cleaning up, and this is the kind of thing that VAR can spot easily. He clearly pulls his shirt. I, I'd feel hard done by if we got a penalty called against us for that, but you can't be tugging someone's shirt when they're jumping for a ball. So, I, you know, I, I think Emery maybe has an argument there. I think he has an argument, but I haven't actually seen a lot of shirt pulls getting uh, penalized in the Premier League this season. That's so. Fair. I'm kind, I'd kind, it's the consistency thing. As long as they stay consistent, which they won't. But mm. yeah, uh, uh, between the two of them, we it might get you over the, the tipping point for getting a penalty, but that's not how it works. You One more accumulate incident then, credits. And that's yeah. their goal. Um, look, I, I do mm. want to say something just really quickly. I don't think Ganduzi played well in this game. And I think he and Shaka were redundant. They wanted to do sort of similar things. And neither of them really had great ideas. I thought Ganduzi grew into the game a bit, but overall not a great game for him. And and I know you have Ganduzi Dan as a potential what would you describe it, a number ten? I, I think this, he can this be a would more have been a good game player, for him yeah. to step forward. Yeah. Well I mean I I would have when I when Willick came off, I would have moved Ganduzi into that role and played Ceballos deeper where I think he's more effective. But you know that's another story. We'll talk about that when we come to the substitutions. For their goal, Ganduzi kind of backs in to the to to the Sheffield player. He he doesn't get off the ground, but it's headed down to the center of the box. Is Shaka supposed to be marking that guy? I have to admit, I didn't get a great look at the goal. Um, was having some technical difficulties at the at the moment that it happened. But yeah. do do you think that is a, um, a Ganduzi issue, a Shaka issue, a Leno issue? Who's who's not marking? Well, uh, you got about three guys pressuring the 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 guy who's doing the head back into the center of the the, the edge of the six yard box, and that space is clear. So, uh, I'm not a def- defensive expert, but something's gone wrong there. We've we've cleared out the center to pressure the guy uh, uh, who's who's heading back into the center, and then we got a guy unmarked in the middle. I mean, I think that's center back space. Mm, yeah, I mean, I, I Shaka was the nearest guy, but the, just because someone's the nearest guy doesn't necessarily mean it's their responsibility. Uh, Clive, I want to move on to the subs real quick, but I'll give you one uh, quick moment on the goal. Do you have a thought yeah. on who should be marking the the Mousset there? Yeah, uh, well, the goalkeeper needs to sort that out. Right. So what happens when a player stands on the goalkeeper's toes? What you do is you put a player, as your defensive team, you put a player between... Your goalkeeper and the attacking player. You get him away from your keeper. You do not want your keeper restricting any which way or form, right? And if you push, if the keeper pushes him away, then he gives a penalty away. So the first thing you do is you put a player in between. We didn't do that. We just let Leno fend for himself. Does he want to do that, or does he want to have people around him? Well, someone didn't lead and do that, right? So on the back post, I don't, I sort of don't like this, and maybe I've seen this a few times when Gwenduzi seems to pick. They're the other team's best person in the air. I don't think he's great in the air. It looks as though our two centre-halves tend to pick up zones. They don't pick up the most dangerous player. So maybe that's a defensive coaching choice. I understand that. But too many times I've seen Guendouzi get a slapping on the back post or marking Harry Maguire, for example. We all know he's not going to win that. So I would like to see a change there, but maybe that's something that the coach is doing that maybe the team are comfortable with, but I'm not comfortable with it. And we have loads of goals in this game. I didn't feel good about any of them. Right. So, so yeah, I think that that could be a combination of the goalkeeper or just a breakdown in communication. But for me, protect your goalkeeper at all times and make sure you have somebody in front of him because you often, it's very easy for the second ball to drop in front of the keeper. And then we saw what happened. Yeah. And, and, and so 
I thought our best period of the game actually came in the last 10 or 15 minutes before halftime where we had sustained possession in the attacking third. They were sitting back. I think they reacted poorly to going ahead, if that makes any sense. Um, We didn't really create any chances, but we had them under some sustained pressure and had some nearly moments. Chambers played a really nice ball into Aubameyang right on the edge of the box, and and he had a shot blocked. Aubameyang, uh, two actions in the penalty area all game, and they were both pressures. Uh, not a game where he was provided any service whatsoever. Low, low, low block game, Elliot. Yeah. Come on, mate. Well, uh, you, know, you, you, know you say that. I, I'm going to tell you something, though. I don't know that they were in a low block as much as we think. We we played a lot of mid-block in this game. We really did. We let them carry the ball to midfield and then told them no further. So we played a lot of mid-block. Now, maybe I, you could That's convince good. me. Yeah, well, because you could convince me, Clive, that the idea behind doing that is that if you can regain the ball, you're allowing there to be some space in behind them to play into. But yep. I'd still prefer to push them back and and pull a Liverpool and recover we, the we, ball. We, 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 we know that team. Right? Okay, well, that's so, fair. All right. Well, we know that team. Until Lacazette came on, we can't we can't do that. You know, We haven't got Giroud. We haven't got the Ozil Giroud triangle pass. We haven't got that anymore. And so what we did by getting them to, to creep up the pitch, we could then hopefully nick it and then go in behind. I understand that. We're not very accurate, not very good at it, but I, I understand it. We're not a low-block team. Chelsea did it to us in the Europa League final. Teams are doing it to us. It's all about the first goal. For me, the bit that dis- disgusted me more than anything was the first 10 minutes, as I said earlier, because we didn't own the game. We didn't own the story of the game. From then on, we are at the mercy of execution. We didn't execute. They did. They could then have a bit of a dust-up with us in the middle of the pitch, get to the last half an hour and say, We've got five defenders. We're pretty good at heading it out of our box. You can have it out there. We're going to press you. We're going to shuffle. We're going to travel across the area. We're going to come all the way out because we don't think you're that very good at crossing. And we're pretty confident we can get our shoulders around and we can head this away. We can have a good look at your fours. They don't want to come in any of us anyway. And we can clear our lines. And that's what I did for half an hour, quite comfortably. Apart from the Tobias chance, which I'm still trying to work out why he didn't score. And uh, also we had the Pepe chance earlier. We had a couple of Shaka type efforts in the first half. Apart from that, it was it was nearly moments that didn't mm. quite happen. Well, so, so let's talk about the substitutions because I, I think they form a big part of the narrative of this game. And you know, one of the things <clears throat> I put out several tweets, angry, uh, unsettled, unhinged tweets yesterday. <laughs> oh, one <bless> of them, you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm staying on brand here, baby. Uh, one of the things that I, I referenced is that there are a lot of things that can get you sacked as a manager: bad results, bad football, uh, going to war with your star players, uh, or misusing or underutilizing key players. And and I think Emery is guilty of all of those things to varying degrees. But I really think that there is an issue of Emery either not totally understanding his players or wanting to put square pegs in round holes. And I think Ceballos is a great example of that. I think taking Willock off made sense. It just wasn't a game for him. As Paul referenced, I would absolutely have moved Genduzzi into that role. Okay? And I would have taken Ceballos and, and sat him deeper because he can get the ball at his feet and carry it forward into that attacking third. I think Genduzzi can break up play. He likes to get in between passes. I think he has a little more... Um, of a, an instinct in the final third than Ceballos does, but he brought Ceballos on for Willick and Clive. I don't think it changed much of anything. Frankly, he, to me, he is not an end product player. He's not a final third player. And I, I don't think it was a good game for him. I think he gives the ball away too cheaply at times. 
I think he likes to go wherever the ball is. He even talked about this in one of his interviews that he did, that he's a Mm -hmm. player who occasionally gets sucked to the ball too much and he needs to work on that. He was absolutely doing that in this game. Sucking too deep. Sucking too deep. Mm, That's probably not the turn of phrase I'm looking for. He was, you know, (laughs) coming back too deep to receive the ball instead of creating the distances and the spacing so that the ball can progress vertically up the pitch. I don't think it was the right switch, and I don't think it made an impact. Obviously, mm. the one that's getting a lot, drawing a lot of ire, is the decision to take Pepe off. But for me, the the Ceballos for Willick switch made absolutely no difference on the game, and I think it is a reflection of a, a lack of Emery again understanding what he wants his ten to do and understanding the type of number tens he has. That's enough for me. I'll now just be quiet, and you can talk. Okay, so the issue with Ceballos for me is apart from the fact that he's positionally hard to pin down. I don't think that was an issue in this game because they weren't trying to attack in the second half. So that's less of an issue. My issue with him is he has too many touches. He runs the ball to you. So he gets the ball, he likes to feed it. It's like This was like three years ago, Ramsey. He used to have five touches when he could have done it in two. But what you're actually doing is you're saying to the defence, this is where I'm going to pass the ball. I'm actually running in this direction. So what you're actually doing is you're not passing it, you're lending it. You're lending it to that player because he's got no option now because you brought the cavalry with you. He'll give it back to you. So he gives it back to him. Then he goes square again. Then he goes after it again. That's the Spanish style, right? To tick attacker and and try to suck you out. But we're not really playing that style. We're not playing his style of football, right? So we don't play in their half consistently. This game was closer to that style. So for me, it's too many touches. So when you've got a, when you've got a low block team, there's a couple of ways to do it, right? You've got to move the ball. You've got to switch the ball continuously like Liverpool did on us when we went into the diamond stroke low block. Switch, 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 switch. Eventually, you'll get a crack, right? So we didn't do that. We have too many touches in central areas. The passes were too slow. They were behind people. These are the important details. If you move it quickly, at pace, within the right pass appreciation, you can start to create the one yard you need to get danger in the, in the, in the box. We didn't do that. We gave them a chance to get back into their shape. That, for me, is Sabaris' major issue. I don't think he's as much defensively. I think he's quite tigerish. I quite like his efforts. I don't think he fixes Arsenal's problems. As for Pepe, for me, he was the... I was worried about him. Let's be honest, we all were worried about him. And there was a run in the first five minutes. We'd, he went down the right-hand flank on a sprint, and he took their centre-half. And I thought, OK, you've got your pace now. You look mm. quick. You look really quick. And we all saw it, right? And then from that moment, I thought he's our best player. In in most of the phases, he's probably playing quite close to a mess. Uh, I've said this a few times, and I think we need to start thinking about it. I don't know how he looks on the numbers, Elliot, but to me, he's a Mesut Ozil-type profile player that hasn't quite got the end product yet. But I think we can all see he has the technical ability, he has the dribbling, he has the awareness to receive it from a standing position and start. Mm. He can play on the transition. He can shoot. He can cross. He can do all of these things, but he's not quite doing any of them yet, if you know what I mean. But we can all see the potential is there. So for me, the profile of player he is, is closer to being an attacking, creative, wide forward stroke 10, rather than a Bamiyang, Lacazette type centre forward. I do think he's going to create a lot for us. And I saw something, we all did. I saw some, I saw him adapting, and he so needed that goal. It would have been, you know, I don't care if we... I do care if he lost the game, but I wanted it for him. I, I wanted it for him. Do you see what I mean? I wanted yeah. that goal for him because it was he was in a peak moment. He started it. He he took Aubameyang's lane, 
by just being quicker to the punch to get into that lane. And he was there, and he just chose the wrong foot to finish with, right? So it's all there. I would not have taken him off because we, we were, many people were thinking Ozil's perfect for this game now. For me, Pepe's the closest to him. He has the ability just to create a yard, to take a cross, to dink it into the area. And they couldn't stop him doing it. And some people said he was tired. You know, I was talking to Matt online today. He said, I'm thinking he's a bit tired. We're losing 1-0. He, he didn't have to play Thursday. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, just he's the only one who was moving them and uh, to create something. The rest were passing around them. And so I thought that was a bad move. And I guarantee you, Sheffield United were glad to see him clapped off. Yeah, I, don't, I, I just don't understand why we needed at that point in that game to leave Kolasinac and Chambers on. I, You know, I, I mean, Paul, this is... Look, I realize that football isn't as simple as bring on an attacker, take off a defender. But sometimes just, you know, a like-for-like like substitution, especially when you're not bringing on, you know, a, a, a superstar player. You know, you're not bringing on Cristiano Ronaldo there. With all due respect to Martinelli, who I absolutely love and, and think could be a superstar player down the road... That's not what you're talking about here. So, you know, can you bring on another controlling player like Torreira to break up play, to make it so they can't get out, to have another guy who can trick his way around someone in midfield and and keep the ball in their attacking third? You could do that. You know, could could you bring on a Martinelli and just say, we're going to play all the attackers? You can do that. But you just can't take Pepe off there. You, You can't take off a guy who can beat a player and create space. You can't take off a guy who, even though he hasn't shown it yet, has the potential to to, to win you the game, I don't understand the mentality. I mean, I understand the mentality there. I don't like the mentality there. I also am not sure that um, the players looked like they totally understood what they were supposed to be doing at the end of the game. You know, one of the things that we've talked about is how our games end like basketball games, our games end, you know, without a lot of form and and, and structure. We look at the North London Derby, and, and yeah, you can say, well, that's a Derby. It's all about emotion. But, Paul, it feels to me like we go in with a plan. The plan isn't great. The players look confused. And by the end, we are just making it up as we go along. So I I, I do want to get your thoughts on the Pepe sub, but also just what seemed to be a a very formless, structureless finish to the game for us. Yeah, I think the manager panicked a little bit. Um, But there was some progress there. I mean, he yanked Chaka as one of his options. So, I mean, uh, I don't. I don't have lots of hate for Chaka. I just think he needs to be more of an option. We need to, there are games when we need to start without him. I'm glad he got yanked. Um, And maybe that's the sign of Emery under pressure will start doing, being more flexible in his options and his trial and error. Um, When we talk about subs, again, if he didn't want to start tyranny for whatever reason, um, he would have been a superb sub to bring on. I actually agree with that. Of, yep, I yeah. agree with that. Mm-hmm. that. There's no way it wouldn't have changed the dynamic. Would it have been enough? I don't know. But it would have been the dynamic he was looking for. It would have given some sense and some structure to things. I mean, Saka was nominally a 10. Uh, Chaka was gone. Saka was ending up back in the left-back position or defending deepest, etc., uh, and just generally all over the place, which to me can't, can't have been something they practiced or planned on. So it was just a hot mess at the end. It was throw everybody at it. The subs didn't make any particular sense. Uh, I mean, I say what you like about Sabalas. Uh, he might have been like for like in some ways with Willock. 
but he came on and was extremely busy, uh, whereas Willock, by contrast, had uh, had been a bit of a zero. Uh, not necessarily all his own fault, but also he didn't find ways to make himself useful while on the pitch. Um, but it's hard to know what we were trying to do towards the end. And I think Tierney would have given us some direction and some focus. Um, Chambers being incredibly busy throughout the game and in the second half um, is another symptom that things aren't what they should be. And I, I agree with Clive. I would have liked to have seen much more attacking wing backs for the second half and the fact that we're that Maitland Niles is kind of nowhere to be seen at the moment I think is a little worrying and shows what happens when you use a younger player but don't use them well and while I've given Emery props for using the younger players it's it's been one of the things that's that's created some uh support f- from me for him um if he starts what feels like a process of using young players badly um, you know the, the my the the support planks under Emery start to creak for me. If if you're doing actual harm along the way, he's got to get a a system that makes sense and use the young players well. And this was just a hot mess for much of the game. The Willock thing made no sense, uh, and that was when the game plan was going to our plan. In the end, bringing on Martinelli to scramble around ineffectually Saka all over the place um Ganduzi trying to do everything um just I don't know he he didn't seem to have a plan for it and it was just a whole bunch of people doing whatever they could yeah I, I it it became a freestyle and I think for a play for a, a manager who was supposed to be about plan and and you know, having having a, a concept that he's working with, I, I don't think he had it. Clive, I know we need to get going. Do you have time to answer one more quick question? Yeah. Okay, sure, and Tim's going to be on after the break, so we, we've got a lot more, uh, and we'll get a little more general about Emery and where we go from here with Tim. But at the end of the game, after the match, Emery was, I think, frustrated, understandably, but seemed to be more frustrated with Mike Dean, which, let's face it, it's easy to be frustrated with Mike Dean. He he claimed that it should have been a Socrates penalty, but then the thing he said is, we didn't deserve to lose lose this game he he felt that we were the much better side. How did you feel about his comments and how that reflects on how he's seeing the game? I think he had a quick look at the stats before he came out for his interview and he knew he had more corners and more shots and he told the audience that. Big deal. We all, we've all got stats on, so we knew that as well. Right? So, um, so for me, I don't... It, it was a 1-1 game that we managed to lose. Big, <laughs> that's the truth of it, right? We managed to lose a game we should have drawn 1-1, but to be honest... I would have been disappointed with a draw. You know, we should be, I, I'm not just saying this, we're Arsenal, we should be winning. I looked at them and thought, I don't know half of their team. And they've got a decent coach, they've got a back three system and they believe in it. And they spring from that and they create scoring opportunities minimally. But they, they really do trust their defending. So it was key to score. And we didn't. Right, So... Did we deserve to lose the game? Probably not. We created big enough big chances to get an, an equaliser. And one of the big chances that we created was a couple mm. was a penalty attempt. And it didn't it didn't come our way, right? And it was a penalty, we all agree. We didn't get it. We didn't get it at all. So so he's walking away thinking, oh, I could have drawn that game one one. But therein lies the problem. We have to go into these games with a bigger attitude. There was a moment in the preview pod last week when Tim said, uh, I think it's going to be 1-1. One, one. And it sort of hit me like a stone. It's like, my God, you know what? 
we're not going to win this game. <laughs> because we, because why do you think we're going to win this game? Because we don't win these games away from home midweek night games in the Premier League. We just don't win them. We we known this for years, but every time they come along, I think we're going to win. And Tim just sobered me up by saying it's going to be one one. What he's really saying, I don't want to predict a, a defeat, but we're going to lose. And that's exactly what happened. That game, what hurt me about that game was we've seen it so many times over the last half a decade. That could have been West Brom away. That could have been Stoke away. You know, should I continue? We've seen this before. An inferior team gets into us, scores from the minimum amount of pressure. We miss the first chance. They then score. We're on the hurry up chasing them. We don't quite score. We all walk away and go and kill ourselves because we've lost a game of football. When really what's wrong is our approach to these games. We've stopped being the club we used to be. We don't impose ourselves. Mm. Emery's continued this. Um, it was the same things we were saying about Wenger towards the end of his reign away from home. We have an away from home issue. I would like, you know, if it was me, I would have them. A different strategy away from home. I would have a I'd have a one system away from home and I would lean into it all of the time. Right? I wouldn't change it and I would build from there and I would get some sort of continuity around how we play away from home and I would get our best players near the goal. The talent in our team in the top end of the pitch, they don't have the ball enough. It's it's very, very simple. They don't have the ball enough in areas where they can do something. We've got Pepe defending down by his corner flag. Why is that happening? Receiving the ball in our half with two monsters behind and stepping on his Achilles. We got Abamyan getting kicked. We got Lacazette getting kicked in areas where they can't score. That tells me we're doing something wrong. We haven't we're not playing in the right areas. We're too stretched front to back. We're playing too deep. We're playing too close to our goal for too long. And we're encouraging teams onto us. Yeah. And um and that's the truth. And I think that is something for the coach. I think it's him. I think your job, as I said earlier, is to prepare a team with positivity, intensity, to go out there with confidence, to go and be an opposition which is inferior to you. And we're not doing that. I'm afraid. I don't want to call him negative. I think there's too much fear wrapped around this role for him to manage. I think he's started to just drown a little bit. And that is the first time in his period here that he's ever quoted a referee issue, as far as I can remember, because I think he knew that was an important night. Mm. He needed a little bit of deflection. He's not a great communicator. No one was buying it. No. Everyone was everyone was laughing at the fact that is a classic Arsenal defeat midweek in a Premier League. Yeah, and, and I mean, you know, obviously the pundits went in and said their usual garbage. I, I don't think the analysis was particularly cogent, but... Those post-match comments, to me, sounded like a manager, a defiant manager trying to say he still deserves to be in the job because I don't see how you can look at that and make some of the comments he made. The thing that bothered me, he said, we created more chances. We had nine shots. We created less than one expected goal, and half of it came from one shot 20 minutes into the game. Our first shot, by the way, 20 minutes into the game. Nine shots, less than one expected goal. I think the problem with Unai Emery... Yeah, the Pepe Pepe one does count. So of the 0.8 roughly XG that we created, 0.4 of it came from Pepe's one chance. Okay? That's half of what we created in the whole game. Now, admittedly, that's a goal that can win you a game. But I think Emery is a coach who believes that if you edge it, 
That's what you should be doing. You should edge the game. And I realize, look, you can't go out and blow the doors off everyone. We don't blow the doors off anyone. And there's a thing called variance. And the whole concept of variance is that, you know, things aren't always going to go your way. A little luck here, a little bad luck here. Some days Pepe tips that one in, some days he doesn't. If you take 50 shots, variance is going to work in your favor. One's going to go in, deflect off someone's ankle. If you take two shots you have less chance for variance to work in your favor. If you concede a lot of shots, it works vice versa. My point is, Emery doesn't play football to put teams under enough pressure. And because they're not under enough pressure, they don't make as many mistakes. We don't get as much luck. We don't get as many breaks. You can't earn penalties if you're not in the box. You can't get cheap deflections if you don't take shots. You can't get a goalkeeper howler to win you a game if you don't put the shots on target. And that's the problem. You know, football can't always be about the best exceptional skill. Sometimes it is about luck, but you create that luck through sustained pressure. Emery's comments, to me, reflect a manager who feels edging the game, just having enough of it, just doing enough, is what you should be playing for. And that's not big club mentality. That's mid-table mentality. That's small club mentality. We edged it. So if you edge it enough, you'll get three points occasionally. We need three points regularly. We are now sitting outside the top four with rivals that are not very good. The window to get top four is this season. Spurs, Chelsea, United, they're all going to eventually get their shit together. You could argue that Chelsea already do. You know, I don't know what will happen with Leicester. We'll have to see. But but the window is open, and he's got to somehow... This club has to go through it this, this season. So we'll talk to Tim a little bit about Emery and where we go from here. It is a really disappointing night. And and the thing that drives me nuts is we're going to see Tierney and Bellerin start against Vittoria on Thursday, and we're going to camp in their final third, and we're going to win 5-1 or 4-0 or 6-0, and it's going to be brilliant. That's they're not very good, mate. Well, they're not very good, but it's the point that, like, it won't have any bearing on what we do going forward. It won't have any bearing on style. And I get that, you know, look, if you play 11-year-olds, you can't necessarily translate those things, but... I, I just don't think there's any intention to change what we're doing. This is the football we're going to play, and these are the kinds of games we're going to have as a result of it. Paul's on Twitter. Pause in my pants. Thanks, pause. Woohoo! Clive's on Twitter. Clive PFC. Thanks, Clive. What? Thank you. All right, so Oscar Wood's article will be out in a couple of days. Tim's coming up next. Uh, over on Patreon, we'll have an interview with Oscar about his article and, and a Doomcast coming up over there, too, if that's your bag. Uh, and if you are, what's wrong with you? You're just like me. That's what's wrong with you. Uh, so we'll do all that. By the way, The Athletic, um, again, if you want to do it in pounds.co.uk, .com, I guess, defaults to dollars. This is something someone just told me about. I don't think it makes a difference. It's just transaction fees, maybe. Either way, theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal Vision, you'll get half off and, uh, and a month free. So we'd love it if you do that. We'll take a break to tell you more about that. And when we come back, Tim will come on and uh, tell us how much fun he had in Sheffield the other night. Talk to you in a moment. Okay, it's time to tell you about The Athletic, the new home of football writing and a world-class sports website. You can get The Athletic for half off and a month trial right now if you go to theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal Vision. You'll help the pod, and of course you'll help The Athletic too, but that's a good thing because you will be at the new home of football getting world-class writing and the best coverage of Arsenal from writers like Amy Lawrence, whom we love, has been on the pod, David Ornstein, James McNicholas, also known as Gunnerblog, myself, but don't let that hold you back. The coverage of sports is unrivaled and there's no advertising to get in the way, no clickbait. They're not chasing ad revenue. They're just trying to write great in-depth articles. They've broken some incredible news. They've had some incredible interviews. Loved the article about the Eddie and Ketty alone to Leeds and how that came about. So there's a lot to like there. Try it out. It's a month free. And then if you stick with it, it's $2.50 a month. That's it. So you can go to theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal Vision and try it now. See what all the buzz is about. 
Go sign up now, theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal Vision. All right, now that all that is out of the way, the athletic talk, talking to Clive and Paul, me blathering on about whatever the hell I was talking about, finally the podcast can get started. Tim is here. You can find him on Twitter. It's Roberto. Hello, Tim. Hello there. Uh, I will let you know, Paul has a new microphone. It sounds fucking fantastic. So I think, you know, now, just, just five years or so into this project we call a podcast, we're we're starting to sound kind of professional here. <laughs> um, yeah, not not before time. Not before time. The question is, when will that happen to Arsenal under Emery? And that leads us nicely <laughs> into the question of this match. So you were there. I want to ask you um, sort of a, a circumstantial question, I guess. I, mm-hmm. I never expect you to be the voice of all of these supporters. So I want to ask you mm. to be the voice of all of the away supporters. Um, <laughs> at the at the end under Arsene Wenger, it got fairly poisonous at times mm. uh, towards Arsene. And it was pretty clear how the away support felt. And um, they expressed that in no uncertain terms. In some instances, the train platform at Stoke obviously being one that's pointed to a lot. I'm curious to get your take on how the reaction to this result, the substitutions, the manager in general... Uh, from the whole, the away support compares to how it had gotten towards the end uh, under Wenger, and if there's any relationship there. Uh, no, there isn't. Yeah, um, it got it got very toxic under Arsene Wenger, and that's obviously because things built up over a long period of time, mm. and different people arrived at conclusions at different times, and there was lots of infighting, and it was very incendiary. Uh, this is nothing like that. There's no like. Um, call for his head or anything like that there's no that I, I don't even like detect an awful lot of anger it's it's we've kind of gone straight to apathy um and i actually think that happened for a spell last season as well and i think what's maybe slightly not unique about this situation i, I think there's been some resentment Mm. Um, that started to build up at the end of last season. But it all kind of got delayed because we had that appalling run at the end of the Premier League season and completely blew third, let alone fourth. But we had the Europa League final to come. So it kind of, it was, you know, it was suspended in time. And then the Europa League final was so bad (laughs) that in a weird way, Emery escaped criticism because it was so bad that everyone just kind of like slammed the door and just went, oh, I, I don't, you know, look, looking at Arsenal and going, I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to talk about you. I want to just forget you exist for three months. And nobody really wanted to talk about Arsenal. So that kind of delayed some of the resentment. But I think you saw it perhaps for the first time in the summer at the Q&A um, with Raul Sanyehi, Edu and, uh, and Vinay, which was, you know, which was a bit fiery um, mm. because none of the signings had really been done at that point. But then that, that was quickly abated by the signings. So, like, I do think for a while, do you remember, I think after the Huddersfield game last season, I spoke about this, that everyone, that was a game we won, but, like, I've never known such, like, a dull atmosphere from the away fans like everyone just seemed bored like all of that kind of you know we've got our arsenal back for that really premature and quite silly chant at fulham last year like that all evaporated so quickly and in the winter there was there was lots of just kind of you know people just standing there watching listlessly um and that's kind of what what's happening again now i i would say that unai emery from what i can see doesn't have much outward support um, but I, I don't think we're, like I don't think it will be allowed to get to the stage where there's you know an, an absolute kind of call for his head because I think this will all end sooner than that. 
Yeah, that's actually a really fair point. I, I think one of the reasons it was able to get so toxic under Arson is that he was able to stay in the position long past when other underperforming managers would have because of his tenure mm. uh, and what had happened previously. So that that is actually a really good point and one I didn't consider because I am a moron. Um, so a couple of things about the match and then I want to just get to generalities about Emery and, mm. and where we go from here. I do want to get your take on the tyranny thing though. I think, uh, you know, Emery probably could have... Co- covered himself a little if he just said we still just have a little bit of concern about tyranny and practice you know in training he mm. he looked a little short of fitness but no he comes out and says cola hasn't done anything deserved to be dropped and i just think that that is a cowardly mentality i mean it, it just is a cowardly way to look at football you don't want to make the big choice you're sitting in the big chair you have to make the big choice we paid a lot mm. for this guy fullback has been an issue and he doesn't make the choice so how frustrating is that for you and um and what's your reaction to his decision yeah it's it it's kind of emery all over it's just like muddled um and it's difficult to decipher uh, it's difficult to decipher you know there's a separation between what he says and what actually happens so he said you know tn is completely fit it's fine you know like holding bellerin back i understand more because it was a bigger injury um and chambers is playing okay albeit i i still just i, I like i think he's doing admirably but he's just fundamentally not a right back um or not the sort of right back we need um but then again maybe he's the kind of right back that emery kind of likes because it's all a bit like if you're being <laughs> quite conservative um you know having a center half at, at, at fullback possibly appeals to him um and the class i like i i can't understand that at all because i think i think class is dreadful to be yeah, honest he is. I, um... and, and ironically he had the the pass <laughs> of the game that could have you know could have gotten us yeah. a, a goal but beyond that nothing yeah I mean, I mean maybe i've been harsh by saying dreadful but i you know i i'm sure there's probably a better footballer than the one we've seen at arsenal there but again i, I just think fundamentally he's not a left back in a back four he doesn't have the athleticism to do that um he's one of those players i look at and i just think I don't know what he, he reminds me a bit of Thomas Vermaelen, you know, like I used to look at Thomas Vermaelen and I used to think, I don't know which position you can play in because <laughs> I think fundamentally there's probably like a decent footballer in there, but I can't think of a position I would actually play you in. And it's the same with Kalasanac. I just think, I think his lack of athleticism is just, yeah, it's, it's just too big a price to pay and his, his technical level is, is just not good enough. Mm. Um, and and he's just a player I would absolutely I think if he left tomorrow um, you know I'd forget his name by Friday Uh, you know I'd forget that he played for us um, frankly so to to say that he's done nothing to get dropped is is weird to me it's 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 weird how Emery kind of considers everyone a movable feast except for like Granite Xhaka and Kalasanac. I, I just I find that really odd, and I can't get my head around it. Which is kind of a pithy summary of Unai Emery's Arsenal reign, to be honest. Yeah, well said. So to to me, I just think whatever excuse you want to have for Emery, it's always based around some player becoming available who's going to transform the football that yeah. we play, and I I think that that just ignores the fact that. He has been showing us how he wants the team to play for so long. Now, will having better players in those positions mean that we do it a little better? It could, but I still think it's fair to question whether the approach makes sense for a club of our size that needs to pick up the amount of points we need to pick up to to achieve our goals. So, 
after watching so much Emory football and and seeing it sort of culminate in this dreadful, dreary performance and how dull and lifeless the Premier League football is, are you prepared to say that we know what Emory's football is? This is it. And the jam tomorrow excuses are not going to change the kind of football that we see from this club. Yeah, 100 percent. Absolutely. 100 percent. We play, um, you know, we play underdog football and 75 to 80 percent of the games we play, we are fundamentally not the underdog. Um, And, you know, like I always say, kind of you can tell broadly what a team's been told to do when you look at the first 10 minutes of a game after that it can become a bit chaotic and unstructured and people can panic and you know the opposition responds and all of that but the first 10 minutes will tell you what a team's been told to do and i and and so you can see that they were told basically to sit off of Sheffield United and pay them lots and lots of respect in the first half and kind of let them dictate the game um and and I, I don't get it. I, do, I don't understand. I can't reconcile that thinking. I don't understand what he thought would happen other than what kind of keeps happening, which is, um, you know, we, we play, I think uh, Dan Zakiri wrote, wrote a really good piece in The Telegraph today. He was saying like that Emery dices with the margins too much, you know, and all of our games this season have been like on a knife edge and we could win them by a goal, lose them by a goal or draw. Like he doesn't just like, you know, to, to use uh, perhaps inappropriately use a Wengerism to release the handbrake and just go, do you know what? We're better than these. Let's go and try and win three or four nil. And we probably won't win three or four nil, but we might win two nil trying because we're just playing better than they are. And instead, we kind of dice with the margins of the game and treat every game like a 50-50 or like a European away tie or something and try and snatch a result. And it's And it's just... Yeah, I just, I, I just don't get it. I don't understand it. No, and I mean, do you think it's borne out by his comments after the match where he said, we deserve yeah. to win? You know, I went on a, a long rant to end the first segment. It'll give you uh, no shock to hear. Just basically saying that, like, of course he thought we deserved to win because we edged it. And edging yeah, exactly. it in, in Emery's mind is how you you play football to edge it and hope that, you know, if you're a little better, it'll fall in your favor. Whereas what the big club managers realize is, no, you batter the opposition because there's variance in a low-scoring game and you need to create more of that opportunity for things to go your way and eliminate the possibility that a little bad luck goes against you. They get a goal off a corner and they win. So do you think his comments after the match are just a reminder of that, that the football we're seeing in the mentality do align? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Because basically Sheffield United and Arsenal had a big chance each um, and they took theirs and we didn't take ours. Um, and, and that's what a lot of the games have been like. That Against Bournemouth, both teams probably had a big chance each. We took ours, Bournemouth didn't take theirs. Um, you know, Spurs, Watford, like a lot of the games are like that. You know, there's there's just there's just not much in them. And, and yeah, I, I think, like, I can't believe that the team have, are completely going rogue and just not following instruction. Like to some extent, this is, this must be what they're being told to do. Um, when you keep seeing the same thing, then, you know, it, I guess I used to think that maybe Arsenal, that like the players were a bit confused, but I think that less now, I just think this, this is what clearly what they're being told to do. They're being told to play marginal underdog football in every game. Um, which is why 
the record against the bigger clubs um, has improved because that's not a bad idea in those games, which is why we got through to the Europa League final last year because, you know, in a two-legged affair, yeah, you can do that, say, in the away leg or something. But, um, yeah, the, this is... This, this is fundamentally who he is and the football he wants to play. And I look at the squad we've got and I see a manager that has, you know, really top tier attacking talent and not top tier defensive or defensive midfield talent. But he wants to lean into the defensive and defensive midfield talent to try and get results, which, again, I, I, I just don't get it. Um, I respect and appreciate if that's what he's done you know, throughout his career. And if that worked at Sevilla, fine. Um, albeit, you know, at Sevilla, he was finishing between fifth and eighth every year, which which I think is where he is as a manager. I think that's his level. But, I, you know, I don't understand why he came to Arsenal, looked at what he has to work with, and then they spent another £70 million on another winger. And he's still leaning into the defensive elements of the team. And um, I, I, I think it's nuts. Like, we... We're kind of cautious, but we don't even get like the defensive solidarity that you that you should get. Like if Rafa Benitez managed us, right? I, we'd be cautious, and it would probably be a bit boring to watch. But I bet we'd defend well. Mm. Like we, we're in this like weird halfway house where we kind of notionally, I guess, try and play on the counter, but we don't force like any turnovers or anything that teams who are good at playing on the counter do. We don't take that kind of initiative. We're quite cautious, but we're still shit at defending. It's it's just this like really weird in-between phase. Well, like our possession numbers are all down. Um, and, and again, I, I could live with that. I'm not I'm not obsessed with the idea of having possession if, if you've got like a bit more of a if you've got a plan for what to do without the ball, but our possession numbers have dropped and we're doing nothing without the ball. It's just, it, I find it weird. I really do. Just run the numbers, run the numbers. It makes total sense, right? You can point to the the, the tap in that Pepe misses and say, well, it worked. Counter, counter-attacking football works. According to XG, that's somewhere between a 0.4 and 0.5 chance, which means 60, 50 to 60% of the time, those chances get missed. They shouldn't, mm. but they do. If you create one of those, you're basically yeah. saying 50 to 60% of the time we won't score and 40% of the time we will. And that And you're you're it, banking on it falling to a bam. Yeah, and, basically. And, and, exactly. And 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 but it goes beyond that too, right? Which is that okay, you can play on the counterattack. If you have 9 shots every game, you're going to lose a lot of games, you're going to draw a lot of games. Cuz with 9 shots, you you just don't create enough chances that you can be sure you'll put one away. Um you know, in our away matches, we are averaging around nine and a half shots, which is near the bottom of the league. It's just dreadful. And, you know, raw shot totals don't tell you everything, but they certainly tell you about our approach. Tim, if you if you draw a, a rectangle in the middle of the pitch from the midfield stripe to their goal, we basically made no passes in that zone. Um, we just don't use the middle of the pitch at all. And I, I hate to even ask you about Mesut Ozil, but I'm just going to touch on it quickly. Mm. I... I think there's a real issue with Emery too of communicating clearly what he wants on the pitch and communicating clearly what he what he expects from his team because he just came off saying oh, Messi's been training better, it's getting better, he's working harder, he's left out of the team. Joe Willick plays number 10, he has 9 passes in the first half and a half where we had 260, our number 10 has 9. He brings on Ceballos who is never a 10, he is clearly an 8. He brings him on to play that role second half. He's basically dreadful. Meanwhile, 
we are clearly overpaying for Ozil. No one disagrees with that, and he's clearly in decline. No one disagrees with that either. But he is a guy who can drop into space, connect midfield to attack, and maybe create something from central spaces. We had not one pass into the box from a central location in this game. So, you know, for you, does this just further heap pressure on Emery because he he continues to make this such an issue at a position that we're getting very little from to begin with? Yeah, yeah. So I, I think there are two sides to that. Um First, I'll go into like the slightly annoying side, I guess, sure, that, that will probably have like people shouting at me while they're listening to this. I mean, Ozil's played quite a lot of times in Emery teams and hasn't been effective. And to be fair, I don't think that's always because he's a lazy chancer or he's in decline or anything. But for the reasons you highlight, Emery doesn't want to attack through those zones. And again, I can, I can I can understand if you want to make attacking from wide spaces a priority, but it seems to me that we completely sacrifice the idea of going through the centre whatsoever. You know, that basically there's not enough variance there. So there, there have been a lot of games Ozil's played in Emery teams where he just hasn't been able to get on the ball because we just don't play the ball in those areas. So I, on one hand, I'm slightly sceptical. On the other, um, while I don't think that he would like transform us in every single game, um, I think it would be marginally better, yeah, because... You know, you've pointed this out many times. Nobody seems to be able to interpret what Emery wants from that mm. role. And unless, I, I mean, maybe, I don't know, he keeps taking players off. So, you know, I was going to say maybe he's happy with Joe Willock only having nine touches and that's kind of what he wanted, but he took him off. So it clearly wasn't. Um, and then Tobias did no better when he came on. Ramsey wasn't able to do it. Ozil hasn't been able to do it. He's tried Lucas Torreira there as well. Like nobody, like it's it's like kryptonite. Nobody seems to be able to work out what he wants from this position, and I think it's just because, you know, he wants to attack through wide spaces, but at the absolute, complete, total, and utter expense of anything else, and um, which I think is a bit crazy. But but yeah, look, you know, it's like Paul says, right? Only good results count like good results solve everything yeah so if you're ostracizing a player and leaving them out and you're not getting the results then yes that is always going to come back to you and he's you know he's he's kind of made an enemy of Ozil and for all we know he might be quite right to do that because this is clearly stuff that's going on behind the scenes but you know there's another popular player in Lucas Torreira as well who you know I wouldn't say he's ostracizing but he's not selecting him and he's another one people will look at and just go, well, hang on, we're playing rubbish football. You know, why are you leaving this guy out? Um, and, and you know, those, those are all, however real they are for the manager, whether Lucas Torreira and or Mesut Ozil really improve this team, in terms of um, what I'd call the spin war, the PR war, it, yeah, it makes you weak. And, you know, that's not entirely irrelevant because that can make you weak with your own players as well because they're, they're not immune to this. You know, someone like, I, I'm not inside Bamiang's head, but someone like Bamiang might think, Jesus, I got, I got none of the ball. Like, what was I supposed to do? And, um, you know, our best number 10 is not even here. Um, and, and that can make you vulnerable. Um, it, mm. it makes those things talking points. And, you know, whether they're actually tactically significant, if enough people think that, yeah, is a problem. Yeah, and let's be honest too, right? I mean, developing young players is a crucial initiative at the club, and I am 100% behind it. But you can understand if a 30-year-old Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, who's one of the best strikers in the world, looks around and sees a teenager 
to the left of him, a teenager behind him, you know, and and a newly arrived 24-year-old on the other side of him and says, this is what's serving me right now. You know, and a, and a 20-year-old deep-lying midfielder and another guy who just keeps getting starts for no reason. But, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, if you're Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang and you look around and you say that's where the supply is coming from, you could see how you'd be like, I came here and I thought Mesodozo was going to be supplying me and I'd, you know, I'd be playing next to, you know, really top players, Mkhitaryan, you know, he might have more reputational uh, credit with someone like Aubameyang if, if he wasn't in fact that good. And now he's playing with kids and yeah, that can frustrate you. You know, Tim, I said on Twitter and I think there are a variety of ways a manager can get sacked, but let's create categories of things, right? The results weigh on a manager, obviously. The quality of the football weighs on a manager, obviously. The relationship he has with his star players, the way he utilizes or misutilizes or underutilizes certain players that have been brought in by the club for him since he's arrived, right? So if the results are Relationship with the fans? Yeah, relationship with the fans is obviously a huge one. But I, I think the relationship with the fans, to some extent, is driven almost entirely by number one and two, right? I mean, if the results are good and the football's good. But if the results are mediocre and the football is bad and the star players are exiled and players like Torreira are being misused and he was brought in the first summer Emery got here and basically hasn't been used that effectively for the better part of a year now, um, you start to say, what is his foothold in this job? Mm. What is the thing he points to? I mean, you can say, well, he's using youth players. Well, McTarion and Awobi were sold out from under him. He didn't really have a choice given to him. Uh, other yeah. than Matteo Genduzzi's development, I'm not sure what the check mark is in, in Emery's box. So if you were making the argument for Emery right now, and I'm, being, I'm saying this with the God's honest sincerity, not just some dick who hates the guy and wants him sacked. What is the argument, not for what could happen in the future, because let's be honest, anything could happen in the future. We could go undefeated the rest of the season. We could win every game we play. We could hire Mikel Arteta next week and lose every game. We could hire Mikel Arteta next week and win every game. No one knows the future, and I'm sick of the excuses about what it'll be like in the future. With what we've seen to this point, can you latch on to a strong argument in defense of what Unai Emery has done since arriving? Uh, no. Well, because what what you've done there is uh, is you know what I always say about like good kind of critical practice is to flip the question. So the question, if you're struggling with the question, should we sack Unai Emery? Ask yourself the question: For what reasons should we not? Um, and yeah, make make the opposite case. And yeah, I'm I'm struggling. I'm really struggling um, with that, to be quite honest. And uh, I I I think you're right. I, I don't think any of those things, you know, are, are beyond the gift of another manager um, at this point. I, I do think it's that simple. Um, and yeah, I, I think I like, so personally, I'd do it now. Um, I really would. I don't think the club are going to do it. Well, I'm pretty certain the club aren't going to do that. Um, and I, I kind of understand the reasons why I'm not like furious about that. But um, yeah, I'd, I'd pull the trigger today for that reason, because I can't think of good reasons to keep him um, because what we've seen, because what you do when you make this decision, right, is you have, as you say, you have to introduce a measure of subjectivity because what you're effectively doing is you're making a prediction and there is no escaping that. Every sacking in history is a prediction that this is not going to get any better, mm -hmm. that we are not backing you to turn this round. So I imagine at the moment, Raul... Edu, Vinay are sitting there going, this isn't good enough. 
and this has to change this has to improve we can't go on like this so the question becomes at what point do you completely lose faith in things changing and i personally i've lot of haven't got that faith I, I don't see any evidence for that obviously that's a pr prediction a projection i could be wrong but when i look at the totality of unai emery's reign at the moment i think can i think of the periods where i thought this guy really knows what he's doing and i reckon there was a short maybe six week period between about i don't know mid-february to early april where i thought ah you know when he found like the 352 with ramsey it's basically when ramsey carried us yeah <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Ramsey got injured and that fell apart. That was the only time where I thought, ah, OK, you know, obviously this is all a bit temporary because Ramsey's going to go and there are other players in that team that are going to go and new players are going to come in. But I thought, OK, maybe he's found something here. And I had patience and everything because I realised that and I still realise he inherited a mess of a squad and it was a difficult job, etc., etc. But basically, 90 percent of his reign is kind of been what we're seeing um at the moment like what would you point to uh what like what's what's changed what's different we pl we play out from the back sometimes and i mean he abandoned it for a few weeks when it wasn't working then he went back to it yeah i mean and go ahead sorry i would almost have like a bit so you know when he first came in and he was doing the four two three one and all of that which is what he played he's played at other clubs and you think okay this is this is his style probably doesn't have the players for it at the moment he's probably doing some shoehorning can appreciate that um he'll probably take a couple of windows to get all the players he wants in there but then you know just abandoning it and and even then you think well okay maybe he's he's made the decision i don't have the players for this i've got to adapt okay but since then what sign has he shown that he's come up with another idea like he hasn't at all and therefore you know in my point of in my opinion i think well then what 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 would i be basing the opinion that he's going to turn this round on mm. yeah I, I don't i don't see what it would be tim i'm going to throw a, th a a theory at you i actually think he has no philosophy and i think that the problem is you cannot be a top manager in world football anymore unless you have a a philosophy underpinning your football that is clear, decisive, and dogmatically applied. I used to believe the problem with Arsene Wenger was that he was too dogmatic. He, he strictly adhered to his principles and his philosophies, and he needed to adapt and adjust. And I have come 180 degrees around on that. Here's what I now believe. Successful managers have clear, strong ideologies, philosophies about football that they imprint on their team. And at some point, it stops working. That's not the time for that mm. manager to change. That's time for the club to change manager. Pochettino mm -hmm. has one of the strongest philosophies about how he plays a clear style of play. It's failing now. He has to leave. He's not going to turn yep. into a different manager. Jose Mourinho had a clear style. It worked until it didn't. He has to be moved on. The whole three-season thing there, right? Um, Klopp, Pep, they have clear ideologies about how they want to play. The solution isn't for a manager to just constantly adapt. It's for a manager to imprint a clear, effective, successful philosophy, have it work until it doesn't, and then the manager moves on. And I think mm -hmm. the problem with Emery is when he arrived, we pressed a bit, but the pressing wasn't working. So then we dropped off a little bit, but that wasn't working. We then went to a back three, which seemed like a stopgap, but it worked for a little bit. So we tried that, but then it wasn't working. So then we went to the the 
four diamond two, but no, the four diamond two didn't work at Anfield. So then we didn't do that. We played out from the back dogmatically, but uh, that got a little bit dicey. So we stopped doing that. He doesn't have a philosophy. He has approaches to individual matches on a case-by-case basis, and the team looks confused. I think players want clear direction. I think they want to know intuitively. When I close my eyes, I know where everybody on the pitch is. I know the spaces I'm supposed to run into. And you know what's funny? Tim, if you just reverse it and talk about players, you'd never ask a player to do that. You'd never say to Aubameyang, hey, we don't really have anyone to play through balls or crosses, so we want you to be a back-to-goal target man striker now. Because he can't mm. do that. If that's what you want, you get rid of him and you bring Giroud back, right? So why should yep. we expect that from a manager? The best managers, and I put Arson in this group. Arson was great when his philosophy worked. When it stopped working, it was time for him to move on. And I think the problem with Emery is he is constantly looking for a solution on a match-by-match basis. And his lack of a clear philosophy that emphasizes attacking front-footed football is a problem that's not going away no matter who we put in the lineup. Is that... Is that rant even remotely coherent, yeah. or, or, or would you disagree yeah. with that? No, 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 totally. It's it, it's just um, a continuation of the last days of Arsenal, where just thrashing around for solutions, mm-hmm. none of which I think the manager really believes in, but it's just, should we try this? Should we try this? Should we try this? Um, I mean, maybe maybe it's not quite as as kind of stark as, as it was with Arsene. But I, I think what the truth is, is is he plays underdog football with, um, should we call it an overdog team? Um, and it just doesn't work. It doesn't fit. Um, and I, I tell you what I was thinking today. I I will I will bet money that Unai Emery will manage West Ham soon. That's quite a random thought. I appreciate, but um, I, I I think Unai Emery uh, will weekend? manage West Ham. <laughs> How quickly can we make that happen? <laughs> like I th- I think because I'm thinking about him as a coach, right? And his reputation took a bit of a knock at PSG, and this was you know not last chance saloon, but in terms of him being considered an elite coach, I think it was, and and yeah, I, I think now. Um, He'll not get a job like this again. He'll start getting kind of West Ham, Watford level work um, in whichever in whichever league um, that offer happens to come. Um, and yeah, I, I think that would probably suit him more. Yeah. Well, final question, just a quick one. Can you remember enjoying watching Arsenal play Premier League football any less than you were enjoying it right now in recent memory? <laughs> It's it's a continuation of of the last couple of years where I've, I've not really enjoyed watching Arsenal in the true sense of you know in terms of like the pure product on the pitch for um for for quite a while for quite a few years obviously like in the last years of the of the Wenger era that whole debate was baked into it and it was impossible to escape and it was exhausting. And, and so there isn't that kind of baggage to this, but mm, that's fair. yeah, it's, it's, it's not fun to watch. I am, um, as it turns out, I can't go to the palace game on Sunday now and hmm. I'm, I'm not remotely upset about it. That's like not a that good used, sign. That, that used to, well, to be honest, it didn't happen for quite a long time, but that would have killed me not long ago. That would have absolutely killed me. And um, yeah, it, it's not like not vaguely upsetting, um, to be honest. Yeah, well, I, I think it, it it can't continue like this for very long. You know, Tim, I think the reason there's a lot of frustration too is 
there was willingness to be patient with Emery early on because I think there was a belief that the change takes time and the squad wasn't great. But realistically, at a minimum, I think people understand that there's some exciting players in this team and the kind of football we're playing just doesn't seem to align with the kind of talent there is in the squad. And also because people understand there's a window. There's a window to finish top four this season. Um, mm. And yep. there's no chance United stay this bad. There's no chance. Well, yep. I mean, Spurs could stay this bad, but, you know, maybe not. And and Chelsea, even, as, as good as they've been, they, they are not, you know, a rock-solid outfit right now. So I think a lot of the hand-wringing also comes down to the fact that if we blow it this season and spend another year in the wilderness, in the Europa League, you know, will the window close a little bit? And that's yep. something I think we can't afford. Well, you know what? We'll leave it there. It hasn't been a fun one to talk about, but I'm sure we will win uh, in thrilling fashion in midweek in the Europa League, and <laughs> we'll all try to pretend that, that that's going to transform Emery into the uh, second coming of Pep Guardiola. So we'll see. Tim's on Twitter at Stoboto. Thanks, Tim. My pleasure. My name's Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter. Yankee Gunner. Give us a five-star review. Write nasty things about us in the comments. Sign up for The Athletic, theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal Vision. They have a big Emery article coming this week. We have a big Emery article coming this week from Oscar Wood. It'll be on our website, free for everybody. So you can definitely check it out there, and then we'll have a pod to uh, coincide with that. So I'm looking forward to that. In any event, uh, you know what? We play again this week. So it's another chance for everything to be fun and lively and happy and a nice, upbeat podcast, and we'll do our best to give you that. And we'll talk to you after Arsenal 10, Victoria Nova. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com